0: On August 1, 1914, the sailing ship Endurance departed London for Buenos Aires and then continued on to a whaling station on the island of South Georgia, deep in the Atlantic Ocean. Having been beaten to the South Pole by Norwegian Roald Amundsen three years earlier, Captain Ernest Shackleton planned to be the first person to lead a team across the Antarctic continent via the South Pole. However, when he and his crew left the island on December 5th, It would be an astonishing 497 days until they would touch land again. The story of what unfolded has been used by many scholars as an example of great leadership. Not much more than a month after setting sail from South Georgia, the Endurance became hopelessly trapped in the sea ice. It never even reached the Antarctic continent. Shackleton had to maintain the men's morale as the ship was cruelly and inevitably crushed by the slow-moving ice. After the ship was lost, he led the crew on a harrowing journey, first across the sea ice, and later in three small boats on a voyage north, eventually reaching a small, uninhabited island on the edge of the South Atlantic Ocean. While the men were unlikely to starve, they subsisted on penguin and seal meat, morale became dangerously low. The island was far from any shipping lanes, and even though the mainland wasn't that far away, The wind and water currents meant that they would never reach it under power of sail. Taking a single seven-meter boat and five men, Shackleton took the decision to venture out into the open ocean in search of South Georgia. They navigated rough waters for 14 days, crossing 1,300 kilometers before finally landing on the west coast of the island. The boat was so damaged when they arrived that they were unable to continue to the whaling station on the island's east side. So Shackleton and his exhausted men had to traverse the mountains and glaciers of the perilous island before they reached help two days later. Once he got his health back, Shackleton launched a rescue party for the remaining men still stuck on that small remote island. In spite of the perilous hazards they faced, not a single member of Shackleton's 28-man team died during nearly two years of being stranded. Many of Shackleton's men were tough, experienced sailors not necessarily open to taking orders. They were put under immense physical and mental stress for months. But to a man, they were willing to follow Shackleton and trusted him completely. Did Shackleton have an innate ability to lead? Or was leadership something that he learned over time? This begs a broader question. Are great leaders born or made? The stakes are high for all of us. Because if it's all nature and we didn't happen to be born that way... Then, if we want to be a leader, we're basically out of luck. On the other hand, if leaders are made, and it's more about nurture, then just about any of us can get there. I'm Michael Wade, a professor at the IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland. And this is Management Under the Microscope. In each episode, we take a widely held assumption about business, management, or leadership, and we put it to the test giving you an inside look into the facts behind the myths and helping you to become a better, more informed manager. In this episode, we're going to explore the nature and nurture sides of leadership. It's one of the
1: great myths that leaders are born and not made, and it's absolutely a myth. It's wrong. I'm of the belief that the research has not demonstrated there is genetic foundation to leadership, and that there's so many other circumstances. So I think we can say leaders are made, not born.
0: That's IMD Professor, an author of a number of best-selling books on leadership, George Colreaser. He doesn't have any doubt that leaders are a product of their environment, their upbringing, the choices they make, and how hard they work. He backs this up with a quote by a man that many see as the father of leadership theory, Warren Bennis. The most
1: dangerous leadership myth is that leaders are born. The myth asserts that people simply either have certain characteristics or not. That's pure nonsense. Leaders are made rather than born. That's one of his great quotes. And of course, all leaders are born.
0: Yeah. (laughs) But they're not necessarily born as as a leader. Yeah. Yes, that's certainly true. We were all born. But does some of us come into the world more likely to become leaders? There was a strong movement in the 1840s led by Thomas Carlyle that promoted the Great Man Theory. Yeah, that's really what it was called. This theory suggests that leadership traits are intrinsic and will emerge when confronted with the appropriate situation. It's based on certain qualities and talents such as deep honesty, moral vision, and compassion that makes some people well-suited for leadership. Other researchers looked at characteristics such as height, facial structure, extroversion, even birth order in a search for the holy grail of leadership. But if that's the case, then a lot of the billions of dollars that companies spend on leadership training is probably being wasted. And do we really believe that people become leaders because they're confident or tall? Before we disregard the nature argument, let's take a little closer look at the science. And for this, we need to look at fish. The three spined stickleback, to be specific. It turns out that there are large differences in the extent to which these fish emerge from covered areas to explore their environments. Some of them are bold and act as leaders, while others are shy and prefer to follow. A team of Japanese researchers tried to see what would happen if the roles were reversed. They put the fish in pairs, consisting of one leader and one follower, and incentivized them to adopt the reverse role. The results were quite interesting. While leaders could learn to follow, the reverse was not the case. Followers didn't learn to become leaders. If we extend this to human behavior, it may indicate that leadership is an innate quality. But that's a big if. After all, we're not fish. How do we test for the genetics of leadership in humans? One answer is to look at twins. Identical twins are particularly useful since they share 100% of their genetic material. But plenty of studies have also used fraternal twins who share 50%. The results over dozens of studies are pretty consistent. Leadership does show a significant degree of genetic bias, coming in at around 30%. So that's 30% nature, 70% nurture. While this work seems promising, it's also been subject to a lot of criticism. Twin studies make assumptions that may not be valid, such as environmental equality, And many of the results come from self-assessments, which can be subject to significant biases.
1: Now, there may be some genetic aspect in terms of assertiveness or ambition, but this can be fully understood in terms of childhood experiences, the whole experience of what happens as you go through life, because people who would be also sons or daughters of great leaders often are very underperforming. So you would expect if that was genetic, that that would not take place. And that is based on
0: on how the parent treats that child as they grow up. That's George Colreaser again, making the point that if leadership was a genetic trait, we would expect to see families producing generation after generation of leaders. There's just no evidence of that happening. Plus, there's plenty of examples of leaders who don't come from families with any significant history of leadership, such as Walt Disney or John D. Rockefeller, both of whom emerge from families with no clear leaders. All in all, it's really not looking good for the nature side. To help better understand the roots of leadership, I turn to someone who's made a career of training ordinary people to become leaders. Alison Meister is a professor of leadership at IMD and director of our Future Leaders Programme. I asked her if she thought that great leaders were born or made.
2: Well, first of all, I love the question because it's an ongoing debate that I have in class all the time. <laughs> but you know, I really wouldn't be in this profession if I didn't believe that you could make great leaders. So I personally think that anyone with the right motivation can become a great leader. But that being said, all of this kind of comes down to your definition of what great leadership is. So I like to ask people to close your eyes and
0: picture a great leader. I suppose we all have different images of leaders. When I close my eyes, people like Churchill, Gandhi, Mandela, and Ernest Shackleton pop into my mind. It's probably quite different for you.
2: Everybody has what I call the leadership prototype. That's kind of their unconscious first flash of what a leader is to me. And this comes from what you've been taught, it comes from society, it comes from experiences you've had with leaders and, you know, labels you put on
0: who's a good leader and who's not a good leader. Now that I reflect on my own unconscious biases, it's pretty depressing. All my prototypes are dead men. But they did get me thinking about nature versus nurture. I'm pretty sure that Gandhi never took a leadership course, and Shackleton was famously inept when it came to both business and politics. I asked Alison Meister why lots of great leaders never took leadership training and whether that might be a sign that genetics plays a role. I think they did take leadership courses. Their courses just
2: weren't official courses. They were this course of life, of of experience, of growing and of testing and failing. I mean, Gandhi didn't become a, a leader overnight either. Mandela didn't become a leader overnight. Mandela became a leader through practice, through trial and error, through developing a vision and practicing it, and then learning how to communicate it, inspiring people behind it.
0: Let's dig a little deeper into the differences between being born a leader and being made a leader. Alison Meister likes to recast the born, made, nature, nurture debate into traits and behaviors. Traits are things you are born with, and behaviors are things that you learn to do.
2: There are certain traits that people are born with that are more likely to make them emerge as a leader or become a leader or be selected as a leader, for example, in groups. They call that leadership emergence. So traits like extroversion, intelligence, narcissism, conscientiousness. These are kind of traits that people have that will make them more likely to emerge as leaders in groups. That being said, there's also behaviors, learnable behaviors that people have in groups that are more likely to make them become leaders. Personally, I would say if I were gonna put numbers on it, I would go 75% to 80% is learned versus 20% will give you that extra boost on the, the born trait side.
0: It seems pretty clear that nurture is more important than nature when it comes to becoming an effective leader. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, that's good news for any of us who have the aspiration to lead you can learn to do it. So what are some concrete steps that people like you or I can take to increase the chances of becoming an effective leader? For George Kohlreiser, a number of elements are at play. One of them is to be able to effectively work through adversity and learn to deal with challenging environments.
1: For example,
0: playing on team sports for for young
1: women, one of the most important things parents can do for their daughters is to get them on a sports team where they have to get out there and they have to feel the pain. They have to bang around, get hit and fall on the ground and be able to hold their own and stand on the ground and believe in themselves. And at the same time as having that experience, have the possibility of pushing back to the parents, especially the father for the daughters, to argue, to negotiate, to dewire the brain very early in how to stand your ground without alienating sometimes leaders who are considered high-performing leaders, but they create diversity. They create division. They don't know how to unify, and they don't know how to connect or create bonding, so that the great leaders are always going to be great communicators in the sense that they can inspire.
0: They can bring people together. Communicating effectively, bringing people together, negotiating, these are all behaviors that take time to develop. And there aren't too many shortcuts. And so that whole myth of the great leader is a
1: myth. And here I turn to uh, Andrew Ericsson, who's probably the outstanding researcher on high performance, in which he says, we as a society want to look up to our heroes, our leaders, our champions, and say, because we did not get there, they must have some innate mechanism that made it happen so it takes away the guilt that we're not quite as good as they are and you have to practice correctly and you have to have a mentor and this is the one thing that we see in leaders is that they will always refer to their mentors their coaches those people who emulate it and if they do not have such a thing they make
0: poor decisions and they go down the wrong track Anders Ericsson was the guy who figured out that it takes at least 10,000 hours of practice and sometimes much more to master anything. And the same is true for leadership. Practice makes perfect. But that's not all. Mentors seem to come up again and again in the leadership literature. Richard Branson claimed that if you ask any successful business person, they'll always have had a great mentor at some point along the road. His was Freddie Laker. Mark Zuckerberg sought counsel from Steve Jobs. Bill Gates considers Warren Buffett as his mentor. Plato mentored Aristotle. Oprah Winfrey, Larry Page, Jeff Bezos, Howard Schultz. They've all spoken about the influence that mentors have had on their careers. I asked George Kohlreiser what you should look for in a mentor.
1: A mentor would be someone who gives you a sense of trust, psychological safety, that you feel safe. So the brain shuts down for learning. You also want to look for a mentor who's going to be honest, who gives you good, tough feedback, no sugarcoating, but done with respect so that you can hear the truth. We have so many leaders who live in a world of non-reality because nobody had the guts to tell them what the truth is. And how you do that with respect becomes very important. So someone you feel psychological safety with, that you feel
0: trust, you know they have competence. Having a good mentor clearly seems to be an important part of developing strong leadership capabilities, but there's also an important role of self-management. Alison Meister has an interesting perspective on this based on some research she conducted on stories we tell ourselves about our own leadership abilities.
2: We looked at around 100 men and women leaders who are already leaders, and we talked to them about how did they become leaders. And we found that the stories people were telling about their leadership and about what leaders are and what they do fell into four kind of categories. And these four were first being, so these are the natural born leaders. These are the people who tell stories about, well, actually one person literally said, I came out the shoot being a leader. So, you know, these are the people that say, I was a leader since birth. And so all of the stories they remember, all the stories they reflect on are, you know, I was always a leader. When I was on the playground as a kindergarten student, I was the leader. I was the directing others. And actually around 50% of people, both men and women, said they were natural born leaders.
0: So about half the leaders in the study always considered themselves to be leaders. They weren't simply born or made. They were somehow felt they were predestined. Basically, if you consider yourself a natural-born leader, you're more likely to become one. But only 50% of leaders thought of themselves that way. What about the other 50%?
2: Then we have the engagers. These are the people who became leaders through what they were doing, their behaviors. So creating a vision, bringing people along, affecting change, having a vision for, I want to create a a company and build it up. So these were the people who didn't talk about being born leaders. Their leadership was more tied to what they did on a day-to-day basis. And the third category was performers. These are the, the leaders who they only recognized leaders and felt like leaders when they got the title the business card that said so well of course i wasn't a leader until i became you know cfo or until i had a team of x amount of people so this was more tied to the company and then there's finally the acceptors and these are the ones, if you think of your traditional servant leaders, they didn't feel they were born leaders. These were the leaders who felt that once people were following them, when when, when they could support, when they could enable others, that made them a leader. So they're much more other oriented. And these prototypical packages of leaders we had in our head influences how they actually enact their leadership on a day-to-day basis. So the different behaviors and and how they lead. So this is kind of like a self-reinforcing cycle.
0: Can you recognize yourself in one of these prototypes? If you're a leader, did it influence how you developed? What this research shows is that whether leaders are born or made is not just an academic question it's such a powerful metaphor that it can actually influence the type of leader you become. The stories we tell ourselves about ourselves impact our behaviors. Our mindset about our identity shapes our destiny, at least when it comes to leadership. Beyond having the right mindset, what could you do if you wish to increase your odds of becoming a great leader? How can you accelerate the nurture part?
2: So for somebody who wants to become more effective as a leader, There's so many things you can do. First of all, self-awareness of knowing who you are right now. And so knowing what your strengths are, knowing what your development areas are, knowing what your passions and your motivations are. If you know yourself, you know the identity you come from, the purpose you have, the impact that you want to make in the world. If you first can develop that sense of who you are, then you can figure out how to use that and tap into that to lead others, to make a difference
0: it's also important to be self-aware about why you want to become a leader.
1: Being a leader is a choice. I want to be a leader. Why would someone want to be a leader? Well, because it's a great feeling, a great experience. It also brings service or a sense of meaning and purpose. So I am here as a leader because I want to make the world a better place. Ego does not drive it. Arrogance does not drive it. And one of the big problems in leadership is sorting out when you have enough ego, because if you don't have enough, you're going to be too weak, and when you have so much ego, it overwhelms and
0: destroys others. As George Colreaser notes, ego can work both ways when it comes to leadership. Too much ego can lead to narcissism and self-destructive behavior. We've all seen examples of this in politics, business, entertainment, sports. It's everywhere you look. But lack of ego can also be a dangerous impediment to leadership development. Ultimately, leadership is a personal journey. There was a book on How to Lie
1: with Statistics. I think we all know you can distort things by how you look at things. And I think that's a little bit true for the people who truly believe leaders are born, which gives us all a way out. Well, I'm not born a leader, so let me just take the easy way. I won't even try to be a great leader. I won't live my dream. And I think leadership, we have to understand, is not just leading an organization or a team, it's also leading yourself. So in your life, if you have a dream and you work towards that dream with ambition, with consistency, with the ability to learn along the way, you're a leader,
0: leading yourself. Ernest Shackleton's most famous Antarctic expedition was not his first, it was his third, the first two were failures. He was part of an expedition with Robert Falcon Scott in 1901, in which he and Scott trekked closer to the South Pole than anyone else to that point. He led his first expedition there in 1908 and came even closer, but ultimately fell short. On each trip, he learned valuable lessons about how to survive the harsh conditions on the continent. For example, he learned from Amundsen's success in 1911 that dogs were far better companions on the ice than Scott's donkeys. He also learned a lot about how to lead people. He learned that boredom and despair were as dangerous as wind and ice. He kept up a regular schedule of meals and chores, even when there was little to do. High spirits were maintained through nightly singing, games and skits. He kept an open door policy for anyone who had worries, concerns or ideas to share. He made sure that all the men cross-trained in various roles to increase their collective ability to respond to changing needs. Even after 10 months stuck on the ice with a crippled ship, one man wrote in his journal that it was one of the happiest periods of his life. Shackleton learned that rigidity could lead to disaster. During the 15-day voyage in small boats after leaving the ship, Shackleton changed his plan four times as the environment shifted. He avoided getting emotionally attached to a particular plan, no matter how much time was spent devising it. And each time he needed to convince the men of the new approach. Sir Raymond Priestley, a scientist who served on the Antarctic expeditions with both Scott and Shackleton, once wrote the following. For scientific leadership, give me Scott. For swift and efficient travel, Amundsen. But when you are in a hopeless situation, when there seems no way out, get on your knees and pray for Shackleton. Indeed, when it comes to our own leadership journeys, we shouldn't just follow in the shoes of others. Nurture doesn't mean that there's a single best path for everyone. I think
1: we in business schools do a lot of good in teaching leadership, but we also do something dangerous, and that is to use an overemphasis on here are the great leaders. Now, how did they succeed? Now, just be like them and you will be great. So you study Jack Welch or you study Steve Jobs, or, and nobody's going to do the same thing. But the implication is that you have to do that same thing. Now, learning from models is excellent. I really believe in the cases and the case study method about leadership, but make sure that we move back to finding your own authentic way of being a leader. No two leaders will ever be the same because they have to find their own internal power.
0: Different situations call for different leadership styles. Today, the environment is shifting more rapidly than ever, with the inevitability of the ice under Shackleton's ship, but much faster. Just look at the COVID-19 pandemic. In a matter of weeks in the spring of 2020, many leaders had to radically adjust their leadership approach. Long-term planning had to make way for very short-term tactical decisions about supply chains, working conditions, and sanitation. Cheerleaders had to become cost-cutters, and vice versa. Effective leadership is a shifting target, and many leaders have struggled with this transition. I think that the conclusion of the debate around whether leaders are born or made is that today, neither is sufficient. Whatever leadership traits you may have been born with are unlikely to give you much of an advantage. 30% of the Fortune 500 CEOs are 6 feet 2 inches or 188 centimeters tall which is the case for less than 4% of the general population. But I refuse to believe that being tall makes you a better leader. Today, leadership capabilities mostly nurture, not nature. But learned behavior is not as enduring as it used to be. Leaders need to remake themselves constantly. Steve Jobs was not the same leader during his second stint at Apple than he was the first time around. Unfortunately, it can be hard for leaders to learn and change. They can easily get comfortable in their styles and set in their ways. As Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella likes to say, the learn-it-all will always be the know-it-all. But putting that into practice is easier said than done. This is where mentors can play a major role, as George Colreiser pointed out, to provide clear, honest signals within the noise that often surrounds a leader. So the advice from this episode should be empowering. As Alison Meister said, with the right experiences, the right attitude, the right training, and the right support, just about anyone can become a great leader. But if you get there, don't get too comfortable, as the rapidly evolving world will challenge you to adapt, change, and constantly remake your approach to leadership. You've been listening to Management Under the Microscope, written and presented by me, Michael Wade, and produced by Pete Naughton. We're a production of the IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland, one of the world's leading providers of insight and education for executives. To find out more about us and our new magazine i by IMD, follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Next week, we'll be putting another common assumption under the microscope: the idea that Chinese companies prefer to copy ideas rather than come up with their own. We'll hear from experts with decades of experience of doing business in China and discover that far from writing them off as copycats, many forward-thinking Western companies are now turning to China for innovation. Hit subscribe on this feed to be the first to hear it. And finally, before we go, a small favor. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review wherever you're listening to this. It sounds like a trivial thing, but it really helps us to find new listeners. Thanks for joining us and see you next week.